millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Talking France. Over the next 30 minutes or so of your life, we will do our utmost to shed light on the big issues in France right now and delve into some important matters around life in the country. For example, why has the president announced that thousands more gendarmes will be posted to the routes and country lanes of rural France? Is crime really a problem in the countryside or is this a political stunt? And on a different matter, why is the French government interfering with the recipe for baguettes? And thousands of people move to France each year from Anglophone countries like the UK, the US, Canada and Australia. But who are they all and why are they coming? And what happens when you fall out with your French neighbour? We'll look at the best ways to solve a neighbourly dispute. And after news that Paris has hiked its tourist tax, we'll find out what exactly is this tax and what's the money for? Is it spent on cleaning up the dog poo on the streets or on customer service courses for waiters? I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and this week I've picked out three of the most eminent and eloquent voices on France to join me. The local France's editor, Emma Pearson, and journalist, Jen Mansfield, as well as our connoisseur of French politics and rural France, John Litchfield. Thanks for joining me again, John, Emma and Jen. We should say uh, this week we're all over the place. We're all over France. Me and Jen are in our office in Paris by the Bassin de la Villette in the northeast of the city, just in case any listeners want to come by and meet us. John is up in his bastion in Normandy as usual. And Emma this week is down in western France enjoying some rural living and DIY in Charente, to be precise. Luckily, we have technology and our producer, Reese to make all this work. We hope so. Anyway, right, let's get on with the talking points from this week. Jen, we talk a lot on this podcast about taxes in France and indeed tax rises when they occur, which is quite often. But we've got a new one this week that's made some headlines. That's because Paris authorities have been given the go ahead to triple the tourist tax. That's a tax visitors have to pay on accommodation. That's a hefty hike, Jen. But first, remind us, what is this tax again? So if you've never heard of it, the tourist tax is basically an added on fee that you would pay after booking a hotel, campsite or Airbnb. It's present in most French towns and cities, as well as tourist resorts. And the money collected from it goes back to the commune or the municipality. Uh, The amount of the tax itself is actually pretty low. So you may have paid for it and not even realized. Right. You might see it on your accommodation bill or often you might be asked to actually pay it at the hotel on site, either cash or card. You know, even if you've already paid for your accommodation online. Just tell us what's happening in Paris, Jen. So last week, Valérie Pécresse, the head of the Ile-de-France Regional Council and Clément Bon, the transport minister, approved a proposal to triple the tourist tax in the Paris region. So their goal is to use the extra funds to help keep costs lower for people using the Paris region's public transport network. In Paris, the tax currently ranges in price from 25 cents to 5 euro per adult per night. The lowest price is really for your bare minimum tourist accommodations like campgrounds. And the 5 euro is for the fanciest luxury hotels, also known as palaces, but they're not actually palaces. (laughs) 
So if you've got one adult staying at a three-star hotel in Paris, for example, then the tax would just be one euro 88 per night. Okay, so how much is this going to go up by under the new plan? Well, it would be tripled. So instead of paying 188 per night at the three-star hotel, you'd pay 564. Now, it's worth mentioning that this has not been formally approved yet. It will need to be included in the 2024 budget, which is currently being debated in Parliament. And according to France's tourism minister, Olivier Grégoire, it's going to be up to the individual localities in the Paris region to choose whether they're going to implement the increase of the tax. And they wouldn't be able to go above tripling. So basically, tripling is the cap on the increase. Okay, so it doesn't sound like this tax is all that high to begin with. I mean, if you're paying for a fancy hotel room in Paris, for example, you know, you're spending hundreds, if not thousands, you might not even notice, you know, an extra 15 euros a night. But it's worth a lot to local authorities, Jen. Yeah, so like you said, the tax itself is pretty low for the individual, but it does make a big difference for localities across France. I mean, if you think about the fact that Paris brings in over 30 million tourists per year, you can imagine that it's not just a few centimes here and there that they're getting from this tax. In 2022, Airbnb alone said that they paid 24.3 million euro in tourist taxes to the Paris local authorities. And that's not even counting all of the city's hotels. Across the whole of France, Airbnb paid 148 million in tourist taxes in 2022, which really just shows us that tourism is on the rebound again in France. In 2021, when we still had a lot of COVID travel restrictions in place, they only paid 93 million. So on the up and up. <laughs> Indeed, worth a lot of money. We can imagine the local tax man in Paris, Jen, rubbing his hands with glee at the prospect of millions of visitors descending on the French capital for the Olympic Games next year. Thanks, Jen. Now, if you've eaten a baguette in France since October the 1st, you might have noticed a slight difference in the taste. We know some people have anyway. That's because since the start of the month, new rules have come into place that reduce the legal amount of salt French bakers can use in making a baguette. Basically, each baguette can contain no more than 1.4 grams of salt per 100 grams. Emma, who's joining us on dial-up internet from Charente, why is the French government meddling with baguettes? Well, it's a health thing. It's part of a long-term plan to reduce by 30% the amount of salt that the average French person consumes, since excess salt consumption is closely linked to all sorts of health problems, including hypertension and heart disease. Now, the World Health Organization guidelines say that adults should not consume more than five grams of salt a day, but the average French adult consumes between seven and eight grams a day, so obviously more than they should. That's slightly more than British adults do, more than Americans do, but it's about mid-range average within the EU, which is perhaps quite surprising when you think how many of France's most famous products are really quite salty. I'm thinking Rockfoot cheese here, entrecote frites maybe with the salty fries, maybe that lovely salty butter that you get in northern France. Delicious, mm. but maybe not so good for you. They do love salt, yeah. I mean, look, that's not to mention even a fleur de sel, you know, the famous salt that's harvested from the salt marshes in Western France, you know, they've been harvesting it for hundreds of years. Emma, this isn't the first time the baguette recipe has changed. Uh, no, absolutely not. In fact, since 2015, the salt content of baguettes sold in France has decreased by 20%, really quite significant. This latest change that came in on the 1st of October is just a change of 0.1 grams per 100 grams of bread. So honestly, congratulations if you've noticed a difference in the taste because you obviously have a very sophisticated palate. Speaking of sophisticated palates, did you notice a change? I didn't really, but once I put my bacon, eggs and cheddar cheese into the baguette, it all kind of tasted like it normally does. But readers have noticed a change, haven't they? Some of them have, yeah. I ran a quick Twitter poll, which obviously, mm. caveat, 
not real science. But on our Twitter poll, about 62% of people said they hadn't noticed a change at all. Of the people who had, most of them said that they didn't like it. They preferred their saltier baguettes. But mm. Listen, Emma, don't all boulangeries just make up their own recipes for baguettes? Like, no baguette is the same as the next one, is it? Well, exactly, yes. They yeah, they do all baguettes. All boulangeries have their own sort of closely guarded secret recipe for the baguette. This salt level is a maximum. So your local bakery might have already been using less salt, so wouldn't have had to change their recipe. And of course, it's all in the technique of the, the baking and the skill of the baker and blah, blah, blah. But actually, salt is not the only thing that's regulated about a baguette. If you want to describe your product as a baguette de tradition, which usually sell between 10 cents, 20 cents more expensive than a standard baguette, then the bread itself can only contain four ingredients, flour, water, yeast, and of course, salt. Thanks, Emma. That's a great bit of knowledge there about the tradition baguettes. I've got some more astonishing baguette facts, actually, for listeners. Here we go. According to data site Planetoscope, some 10 billion baguettes are consumed every year in France. That works out at 320 every second. And here we go again. In 1970, there were 55,000 artisanal bakeries, one for every 790 residents Compared with 35,000 today, that's now one for every 2,000 residents. Paris books this trend, though, with the number of boulangeries in the city seeing a sustained rise in recent years. 94% of Parisians live within a five-minute walk of a boulangerie. Jen, do you live within a five-minute walk of a boulangerie? I live within a five-minute walk of three boulangeries. Wow, there's so many. Do you eat a baguette a day, Jen, or a baguette a second? No, I definitely don't. I would maybe say like a quarter of a baguette a day. One thing you notice in Paris is people, the only food you often see people eating on the go is a baguette, isn't it? Like they'll buy a baguette on the way home and they'll nibble it as they're walking. They'll be walking with the baguette kind of in their armpit and then they'll eat it. And and I'm always like, what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Great. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. And just a reminder to listeners, you can find an article with more astonishing facts about baguettes on our website and indeed in the show notes for this podcast. Each year, thousands of people cross the Atlantic or the English Channel, or indeed half the globe in the case of Australians, by taking the plunge and moving to France. But how much do we know about them and their reasons for upping sticks and moving far from home? Are they all coming here for jobs, for romance, or just for the cheese? Jen, you're going to answer some of these questions. Let's start with the British because you've got some surprising info for us. Yeah, so it was a bit surprising because there really aren't as many retirees coming over as you'd think. So the data we're using is from the EU data agency Eurostat, and it looks at who got visas to France in 2022. So basically people moving here for the first time in 2022. As for Brits, 7,927 UK nationals got a first-time residency permit in France in 2022. And out of that number, almost half, or about 40% of them, came here for work. So that includes contract employees, people who came here to set up a business, as well as people just doing freelance work. Retirees are included in the other category for visitor visas, and there were about 1,760 of them. So about one-fifth of the Brits coming over were getting a visa that would allow them to be retired here. Okay, so they're not the biggest group of Brits coming over to France. What about your compatriots, Jen, Americans? Are they all coming here for romance like Emily in Paris? Well, I guess they could enjoy some romance here, but not technically. (laughs) When it comes to Americans, there were 12,220 new visas handed out. So interestingly enough, more Americans than Brits got first-time visas to come to France in 2022. But I was surprised to find out that the majority of those visas weren't actually for people looking to move here full-time. So over half of them were handed out to students, and most of those students have no intention of being here long-term. The majority of those visas were for periods of less than a year. So think university kids spending a semester to abroad. 
only 499 people or about 8% of the total number of students coming to France were on a course for more than one year. As for the rest of my fellow compatriots, we learned from the data that about one in five Americans came here for work. And when we dig a little bit deeper, we find out that the majority of Americans that came to France for work actually only got visas for a maximum of 11 months, meaning they came on shorter term contracts. Only about a quarter of Americans who got their first time visas last year were getting a visa that allowed them to stay for a full year or more. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, a lot of Americans moved to France on short-term work contracts to teach English, for example. What about other non-EU Anglophone countries? We can't forget about Canadians and Australians. Jen, what do we know about Canadians moving to France, for example? So 2,730 Canadians got first-time residency permits in 2022. And honestly, the Canadian picture was pretty similar to the American one. Over half of Canadians coming to France were coming to study. But to be fair, this might be because Canada actually has a youth mobility program with France. So it makes it a little bit easier for young Canadians to come over and study in France and vice versa for the French to go to Canada. Do we know whether many of these Canadians are in fact Quebecois, you know, considering they share the French language and culture? I was wondering this too, but the data didn't actually get that detailed. It just showed us Canadians overall. Still, I was a little bit surprised that only 569 Canadians got work-related visas because France and Quebec have an agreement to respect one another's work licenses and education qualifications. So I'm not sure, but that's a great question, Ben. And as for Australians, so we're moving further away, <laughs> just 1,082 came to France last year. And the biggest single group for Australians was not students or workers like it was for other countries. It was actually the other bracket, which includes retirees. So maybe you have some retired Australians as your neighbors. And Ben, we also shouldn't forget the Kiwis. Uh, if there are any New Zealanders listening, just 250 of you moved to France last year and only 28 came to study. And there is one other group of Anglophones we should not forget. They're the South Africans. 595 South Africans moved to France in 2022. And the biggest group of South Africans was students. So 196 South Africans moved to France to study. Interesting. Just remind us why you moved to France again, Jen? I actually moved to teach English originally. So I was in that group of the right. short-term work contracts. And was it a fairly easy thing to do? Fairly easy process? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I did it right after university. So it was mm. sort of... Um, my university helped with a bit. Mm. Okay, thanks, Jen. Really interesting stuff about all the Anglophones who are moving to France each year. And just a reminder for listeners, if you want to find more information about where the Americans and where the Brits, for example, live in France, we have all the articles on our website. I will include them in the show notes and the article for this podcast. So French President Emmanuel Macron this week announced a plan to employ an extra 2,100 gendarmes in 238 new gendarmerie brigades that will be focused on rural and suburban France rather than the big cities. So does rural France actually need all these new gendarmes? Emma, who's joining us on the line from Charente, is rural France in the middle of a crime wave, Emma? Well, that's a great question, and it's one that quite a few French media and policing experts have been asking too in the wake of Macron's announcement. We should probably say that Macron did say that although these gendarmerie brigades will be focused on rural and suburban France, the exact location will be decided based on what he said was economic, demographic and operational criteria. That last one means crime figures. So there is at least some sense of targeting these units based on crime numbers and where they're needed. And actually, when you dig into this announcement a bit further, it's not really targeting, you know, really small villages in the bucolic French countryside. 
it's more the kind of places which were once rural but are now being incorporated into towns or suburbs as towns sprawl. So it's kind of a, a changing demographic. But there is also a pledge to create just more points of contact for the police. So, for example, if you have a, a non-emergency query, such as you might need to get a crime number for an insurance claim, then you won't have to travel as far or perhaps your local gendarmerie point might get extended opening hours. So it's just a bit more convenient for things like that. But one thing I've always found quite interesting about uh, rural French gendarmerie is not how many of them, but who they are. Because the gendarmerie is technically part of the military, so officers are posted to different areas, as you would be in the army. The actual process is a little bit complicated, but basically the longer you've been a police officer, the more credit you have. And the more credits you have, you get a greater say in where you're posted. Ah, interesting. It's similar with teachers, actually. So, right, experienced officers who've been around the block can choose where they want to go and the rookies get all the tough areas. Yeah, yeah, that can uh, that can be what happens. So often, you know, the, the really tranquil French villages are staffed with highly experienced officers, whereas the tough inner city areas get the newly qualified officers with fewer credits. And this is often cited as one of the reasons, and there are many other reasons, I should say, but this is one of the reasons for this really bad, fractious relationship between police and locals in areas like Paris and Marseille, the areas that were the epicentre of rioting this summer, because you've got a really tense social situation and officers who are just very inexperienced and not really equipped to cope with it. So it's not community policing in the sense that we know it. But obviously, just because a French rural village looks calm, it doesn't mean there isn't crime. And, you know, rural areas do have their own social problems. Okay, so we talk about crimes in rural France. What are the biggest ones? What are the main problems? Well, as you would expect, theft is the most commonly reported crime in rural and small town France. uh, And violent crime is lower than it is in the cities. When we look at the figures for places with the most burglaries per head of the population, so as a percentage, most of the top communes are in the south of France. They're sort of small towns in the south of France. So Age on the Mediterranean coast, that reported the most burglaries per resident. There are also southern towns like Mazamet, Aix-en-Provence and Carcassonne. There are quite a few holiday resorts on there too, such as Deauville or Trouville up in northern France. But there is a perception that second homes are often targeted by burglars. Although actually, when you look at the figures, second homes only account for 6% of burglaries. Main residents account for 50% and businesses for 44%. Also, of course, there are crimes such as domestic abuse and sexual assault that are under reported everywhere. So I think we can safely assume that those are happening in rural areas too, just as they do in the towns. And finally, I must say from my own personal experience, I've seen a lot of drink driving in rural France. Unfortunately, in some places in the countryside, there is still a real culture of getting in the car after a few drinks. The relative isolation means you're kind of less likely to be caught. But obviously, you're still putting yourself and other road users at risk if you do that. This is a good time to bring in our rural France and French politics expert, John Litchfield, who actually joins us on the line from rural France, Normandy, to be precise. John, is crime a big problem in rural France, would you say? Well, it depends what you mean by rural France, I think. I mean, France is a big place, not a monolithic place. And I think there are parts of rural France where it is increasingly a problem. Like in Britain, there are sort of drugs creeping out to sort of rural schools and mm. and police having difficulty in controlling that and people coming out from the cities quite often to steal stuff. Agricultural equipment is very expensive these days and tends to disappear, if not sort of locked away in, uh, overnight. Yes, there is, but it doesn't really compare with what, um, what one 
everyone knows is happening in the inner suburbs and the cities or the cities themselves. Mm. So it's a problem. The rural people are sort of worried about it, sort of not worried about it. I must say here in the tiny hamlet where I live, no one locks their doors. Mm. I never, I, unless I'm going away for more than a day, I, I leave the doors open when I go away. Once had one burglary in, in 25 years, that's right at the beginning. And there was a kind of rash of burglaries going on in the area at the time. And I went to see the gendarmerie and they pointed out that whoever it was had taken something different from each house and he said it's certainly someone who's moved into the area and is equipping mm. their own house and that's how they found him it's a kind of episodic thing i think yes we won't reveal where you live john just in case now that you've re- you, you revealed that you leave your door open but um look let's move on to the, the political angle here then why has macron announced this measure now is he moving on to a kind of key vote winning subject to kind of keep the right at bay like he did with, with immigration, is there a political? Is this a political move essentially? In a way, I mean, you, you, I think you need to put it in the context that uh, in the Sarkozy and Hollande eras, the number of gendarmerie brigades, and I'll come back to what brigades are in a second, was reduced by five hundred in rural areas, and, and Macron is restoring half of those. So you can say he's putting the situation back to what it was a few years ago, and there have been a lot of complaints from from rural mayors and, and rural people that, that has left. You know, some parts of France very exposed to problems of all kinds, uh, you know, from road accidents to crimes. So, yes, it's partly that. It's partly, I think, a kind of somewhat of a psychosis that Macron has about the rural vote after the Gilets Jaunes movement of 2018-19. He's mm. leaning over to try and, and prove that he is putting a lot of money into rural areas, as the government does, as it always does. The idea that somehow rural France is neglected is wrong, I think. There's a huge amount of money invested in rural France of all kinds, but I think in some areas that were a little bit exposed by the brigades having been reduced in in the early part of the century. I mean, a brigade is not a regiment. You know, it sounds like a whole regiment of soldiers, doesn't it? Where we think of a brigade, a brigade is between six and ten officers. You know, and they're either going to be put in little towns which don't have them at the moment, or more, as I understand it, they're going to be mobile brigades covering a whole area with with you know vans and cars and things that allow them to cover villages which don't really get sort of policed at the moment. So yes, uh, it probably makes sense. But whether that's the priority for this country in terms of policing and Crime is rural areas. I don't know. I think this is politically driven to a large extent. John, just you mentioned the rural vote there. What are the key issues for the voters in rural France if we could sum them up? I think it's it's a kind of identity thing, you know. It's a sense that they're being left behind. Uh, it's a sense that they no longer recognise the France of the big cities that they see on the TV, even if they never go there themselves. It's a sense that whatever prosperity and pride they had in their local communities many years ago is now kind of disappearing. You know, agriculture is retreating, or at least the numbers of farmers is retreating. The local industries are closing and being replaced by by sort of some light industries that come in and then go away again very quickly. It's a sense of having lost control of, of no longer being kind of mm. the centre of things in the way that they thought they perhaps were a few years ago. It's a kind of amorphous thing in that way. And it's easily exploited by someone like um, Marine Le Pen, who puts a lot of effort in, into sort of sucking up to rural France and saying how much better it will be when she's in power. But, you know, whatever she's proposing in terms of doing the French to the French economy, especially the relationship with Europe, will be disastrous for rural France. So, yeah, I, I think it's not an easy thing to define. And as I say, it's a very big country and a very empty country, France, and uh, being able to find solutions for all those tiny villages and towns that once were kind of self-sustaining in many ways but no longer are is a problem for, for all politicians. Thanks to John and Emma there for joining us on the line from Normandy and Charente. 
Now, France, like any country for that matter, has its fair share of neighbourly disputes, whether it's about noise, land limits, extensions, or even noisy animals. A new law has come into effect in France from October the 1st, saying that if you want to take your neighbour to court in a dispute, maybe over access or boundaries, you must engage the services of a professional mediator first before you can launch legal proceedings. Now, hopefully it's rare for things to get this far, but Emma, let's look at some of the most common causes of neighbourly disputes in France. Yes. So, I mean, obviously, as general advice, it's best to try and find an informal solution and work things out amiably rather than getting involved in stressful and expensive legal action. My dad, who was a lawyer before he retired, always said that the only people who ever truly win a legal action are lawyers because obviously they get paid whatever happens. But if you can't come to um, an agreement between yourselves, the local mayor is a good person to ask, especially if you're in a small village or maybe a local councillor as well. But if these still don't work, then there are some other places you can go before you need to get the lawyers involved and try going to court. Emma, my neighbours uh, here in Paris were arguing last night over noise. One of the flats was having a party. Is noise the, the most common source of neighbourly disputes in France? Yeah, it's definitely a common dispute. There are a lot of communes that actually have local rules in place about when you can do like maybe noisy DIY or gardening. So you can't do it after a certain time of night or maybe you can't do it on Sunday morning. So it's a good idea to check these out so you don't find yourself the subject of a noise complaint. And in the city, as you've just pointed out, you will often find that apartment blocks don't always have the best soundproofing. So you're likely to become quite aware of your neighbour's taste in music, TV, parties. But if the noise is more than just a simple nuisance and is making your life miserable, the best place to go first is the mairie because they can outline exactly what the noise rules are in your area and whether your neighbour is breaking them. Once you've established that, you can then send a registered letter to your neighbour outlining exactly which noise rules they're breaking. And if they're a tenant, it's a good idea to send a copy of that to their landlord as well because they might get involved. If none of these work, then you can contact the police if the noise is really extreme. You can take them to mediation or ultimately you can take them to court if the noise is uh, excessive. And there have been some high profile, actually, incidents uh, of disputes along the grounds of kind of access or right of way or boundary disputes of land, etc. in the French press over the years. Yeah, I mean, this is really common in rural areas, access disputes or boundary disputes. If the issue is a, a boundary issue, so it's ex- over like where your property stops and where your neighbour's property starts, probably the best person to go to is the notaire who handled the property sale for you because the notaire's primary role is to register the transfer of ownership of the property with the National Land Registry. So they should be able to see on a map the exact details of your property boundary and your neighbour's. But there is one place you can also check out, which is the Cadastro website. This is like a government site that allows you to view property boundaries within a village or commune. It's at cadastra.gov.fr um, and access is free. So you can just go on there and have a look if you want, want to check out whether a, a certain path or area perhaps is owned by you or your neighbour. In most cases, it should be pretty simple because the deeds will tell you where it is. But there are some cases of older properties that maybe haven't changed hands in a long time where you can get two different sets of property deeds that show different boundaries. If that's the case, if you can't come to an agreement between you, then you probably are going to have to enter mediation to figure it out. There was a case I was reading about just today, actually, about a British man who bought a property and and land in in rural France and got into a dispute with a local farmer over kind of an ancient path that went through his land. And it eventually said it led to a campaign of harassment, described it as living in hell. You know, it's an example of a dispute that completely blew up and got out of control over a right of way. 
Yeah, exactly. Access and rights of way can actually be quite a tricky issue. Obviously, there are marked official access routes such as footpaths and cycle paths. And away from those, it is forbidden to access private property. But the problem is that in some places, kind of local traditions of access have developed, like maybe a path that isn't formally designated as a footpath, but everyone in the village uses it and has used it for years. In this case, I'd say probably the mairie is a good place to start. But I do also think if you're the newcomer in a village, it's a good idea to try and show some flexibility if you can, if this is truly an access route that people have used for many years and, and you're the newbie, it's a good idea. But really, the first point of call is the mairie, as it mm. often is. And finally, and probably the trickiest one is disputes over planning permission, extensions, etc. Yeah, exactly. If your neighbour has plans for any kind of building or any kind of development, that will affect your property, like maybe it'll block the light or it'll spoil your view. You can object, but you have quite a tight timeline to do it. And the process itself, you've got to follow the exact process. So anyone who is planning a construction project has to post a large sign that's clearly visible from the public highway detailing exactly what it is they intend to do. If you want to object, you then have two months from the first day that the sign is posted and you post your appeal with the local administrative judge. So people who are planning a construction project, they're not required to contact their neighbours directly. So it's up to you to spot the sign and to file your appeal within that statutory two months. Hmm, two months doesn't seem that long, ever. No, it's not. And I mean, this can be a problem for second time owners in particular. You know, if you're not there, you might miss the sign. There isn't an option to sort of look it up online or anything. There isn't really a way around that. The, the system is the system. But what you can do is, if you've missed that deadline is you can send a registered letter to the mairie asking them to cancel the building permit. Um, obviously, you have to give a, a good reason for that. You can't just do it on a whim. But that's one way to stop it if you've missed that deadline. The other thing that's really worth checking out in advance is how the land around your property property is zoned. If it's zoned as agricultural or a natural zone, then it's unlikely anyone will ever get permission to build on that because it's protected. But if it's listed as a zone U or a zone UA, which means that the land is either already urbanised or can be urbanised, then it's pretty likely that someone will build on that eventually. And your appeal is less likely to, to be successful. You can check out your local urban plan on your Mary's website. It's under the urbanisme section of the website. And you can just go there and see it to see how the land around you is zoned. Brilliant. Some really useful information there, Emma, about neighbourly disputes. We'll let you get back to your septic tank, Emma. Thanks for joining us on the line from Charente. Thanks, Ben. Hello. See you soon. Right, Jen, let's bring this episode to a close by talking about French bottoms. Now, from drinking games to good luck, one night stands to political scandals, the French language has a long list of expressions based on the word cul. That's C-U-L, which means bottom or more colloquial, perhaps arse or ass. Now, it sounds pretty rude, but actually cul is used in some fairly ordinary expressions, Jen. Yeah, so if you're at a bar with your friend and you're drinking a beer and it's time to go, your friend might say, fait coup sec, which is like bottoms up. Bottoms up. Down it in down one. Down it, yeah. yeah down so your that's a faire yeah. coup sec. Yeah. And I'm probably pronouncing it a little wrong because you're not supposed to say the L at the end. You're mm. supposed to say Cusec. Cusec, yeah. And another one that I really like is Lesh Coup. This is very literal. It means kiss ass <laughs> or um, kiss up. And, you know, that's exactly what you would think. It's the person that wants to brown nose with their teacher or yeah. just to suck up. Similar in English, a Lesh Coup. The one I like actually is avoir le cul entre deux chaises. So have your ass between two seats, basically. This is kind of when you're caught in the middle of something or 
or stuck on the fence. Uh, and another one, actually, that I thought was great is Le Coup dans les Rances, which literally translates as to have your bum in the brambles, which sounds pretty unpleasant. But I mean, I think it's basically when you're talking about something when the danger isn't over or there's still work left to do, you're not done yet. You know, it's similar to maybe not out of the woods yet in English. You know, the work the work's not done. You're not in the clear yet. It's avoir les coups dans les ronces. Brilliant. Thanks, Jen, for that little few language tips. Readers should use them with caution. Remember, coup is a bit colloquial. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Thanks to you all for tuning in once again. We'll be back with more next week. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.